kind of a lot, 8.30 in the morning, like a worship song I don't want to do, but that was really good for me. And I liked by the end, I told Adam, he wore that jacket up on stage. I was like, I can't protect you. <laughs> you know? And then like uh, a ministry that like is so exciting and also good God, we have no excuses to not love. I mean, good, how could you have a more concrete opportunity to love people in a very straightforward way that requires no expertise other than care? That's terrifying and really encouraging. Um, lastly, for the last 14 days, I've been praying for um, uh, who to invite to the big chemistry show thing this coming Saturday. It's coming Saturday, the great chemistry show. There might be a slide for this. I don't know. Um, but uh, so I've been praying for this. I had a couple specific people. Lexi and I talked about it. Lexi like texted the little picture thingy to a couple of the parents in our neighborhood. Um, I had on my list yesterday to go talk to this one family just up the street from us. And uh, Lexi went to Costco to like to buy some stuff for this couple we're helping do a Super Bowl party tonight. And she like literally bumped into the couple at Costco and talked with them for 15 minutes. They talked about how like, oh, we want to get in church. We just haven't since COVID. It's only been five years. And like, ah. And she was like, this is perfect. You guys, I'd be love to take you over. And she got to spend time talking with them. And I really believe that if, if you actually ask the Lord, like, who can I invite? It's not your job to get anybody anywhere. It's just our job to cooperate together, to offer Christ, and to do it in ways that are creative and helpful. And this, I think, is a really, really good opportunity. I really encourage you. Get one of those cards. Ask God who to invite. And then just simply invite them, win or lose. You understand? We serve the God who victoriously failed and then won a little bit later. You know what I'm saying? And that's just how life is, especially with God. All right. Uh, I have prepared a really clear 90-minute sermon for you that I'm going to try to preach in about 35 minutes. So um, let's see what we can do. All right. Um, so uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote specifically about this passage in the middle of the 20th century about its, its fundamental dynamic in what the church is. He said, Jesus says this, this is after he watches, washes his disciples' feet, like a servant doing a dirty job, putting people who are beneath him above him. He said, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about um, the technopoly, which is not just technology. Remember, God created us to create technologies, but instead of extending the beauty of the garden, we built Babel to try to become gods. And we keep doing that. And what we've built now is very similar to that. And so I think it's really important for us to understand one of the key ideas of this series is this, that the divide between the love of Christ and the self-idolatry of the technopoly is not a temporary inconsistency. It's a primordial rivalry. You understand? It's not like, a, oh, we'll get this. It's just a little, we're just a little off. It's not an inconsistency. It's a rivalry. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and mammon. Not, there's a lot of both ands in life. There are a few major binaries in life. Either or, right? And so what I've been encouraging us for the last five weeks is, listen, we have to take as seriously as necessary what the technopoly is and its effect on us as people. And we need to see it 
And we need to flee it in such a way as to be ultra-intentional in our use of all technologies and ascetic, that is, disciplined, willing to discipline our bodies and ourselves so that we don't slide into what's natural. That's not good. And we need to realize that Jesus isn't just Lord, that is King, or just Savior, that is Rescuer, but He is Master, that is Master of a way that we follow as disciples. If Jesus is our Lord and Savior, that makes us his disciples. When we do baptisms later, I will baptize new disciples of Jesus in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are, they are his, he is their Savior. They will die and rise with him. But they are taking on his name, pledging that they are his disciples because he's Lord, right? And therefore, if he's a master with a way, we have to follow that way, right? Now, we've talked about faith, how the technology is changing the content of what we believe. Time, how it's eating up the time that God has given us in our lives to love and to do good works and to follow him and to know him. It changes the way we're shaped as human beings down to the very level of our feelings and desires. And this morning we're going to focus on love. That is undermining the very capacity of the human person to love other persons on one level by even diminishing our capacity to be persons. Right? So I want to say three things. This first one I'm going to go through kind of quickly. Most of you know how to get these slides to look at these scriptures a little longer. I hope that you'll actually use each of these scriptures one day this week to study the centrality of love in the way of Christ. Okay, so love is the beating center of living faith in Jesus. Love is the living center of faith in Jesus. You could, to say that you have faith in Jesus, if there is not love flowing out from you and from us collectively— as the body of Christ, the Bible teaches us to think of the faith we claim to have as incredibly suspect. Most of the very central key high point passages in Scripture and summaries of the nature of God's character and our relationship to Him and each other focus on this idea of love, even in places where in the ancient world it would not have been assumed. When God displays His character, when He, he speaks who He is to Moses in Ezekiel 34, He had revealed Himself as holy. But in that situation, he says about himself a number of things. That he's the Lord. But then he says, he maintains his love to thousands and for generations. And then he says, and I don't leave the guilty unpunished because he also loves justice. Right? And then he says about himself, forgiving rebellion, wickedness, and sin. Meaning the God who loves us also then loves our right relationship to each other, us loving each other. Therefore, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. But that creates a problem because we're all guilty. And so the beautiful thing about the God who loves us and loves that we must love each other is that he finds a way to redeem and forgive those who are rebellious, wicked, and sinful so that we can be in the love he maintains in a long-suffering way. In 1 John, in, in two places— John says, God is love. That doesn't mean that God isn't a person and that you could think of God as the highest good, the, a metaphor of human love. No, it means that God is so loving, he is so preeminently the one of love, that you could say God is love, and that would be a meaningful statement. So much is he personified by the queen of all virtues, right? In John 13, he says, the world will actually decide whether or not Jesus is Lord and whether or not we are actually Jesus' disciples— on the basis of whether or not we, in the church, who claim Jesus as our Savior, love each other. Not even whether or not we love them, but whether or not we love us within the local church and 
between local churches, right? In Matthew 22 and Mark 12, there's this greatest commandment where, where Jesus has to summarize the beating heart of the law. He says, it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In other summaries, the Apostle Paul says, by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Jesus there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to kept you for, keep you from obeying the truth? Do you see the Apostle Paul is saying that the faith that seeks the righteousness of God for which we hope, faith rightly expressing itself in line with the truth looks like love. Faith, righteousness, hope, truth find their expression in love. He's, he can say it's so unguardedly. All that matters. It's no longer the law, no longer religious requirements and those sorts of ways. But if love is operating through faith, all the laws that need to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. Right? In 1 Corinthians 1, 13, he's talking about love within the use of spiritual gifts and abilities in the church. And he says, if, if I can speak in the tongue of men and of angels, like if I could literally speak a language from heaven, but I don't actually love in whatever I say or how I do it, I'm just like a gong clinging. I'm making noise. It's of no significance. And then he gets more specific. If I have the gift of prophecy, I could see all mysteries, and I know all knowledge that is divinely given knowledge. Actual revelation from God. But he says, and if I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, right? So think about the greatest divine or spiritual humanitarian you could possibly be. Give away everything that you have or give yourself to the very flames of the fire of martyrdom. He says, but if it's not from love, if I, if I don't have love in me and coming out of me, none of those things matters. There are no acts of spirituality, no acts of heroism and courage, no acts of generosity, no acts of self-suffering that matter at all if they are not rooted in love, right? He says in Colossians, as he's talking about what it means to believe in Jesus, he starts the chapter in chapter 3 of that our minds need to be on heavenly things, not earthly things. Our heart needs to be on heavenly things, not earthly things. He says there's a bunch of things we have to put off, and he talks about all the things we have to put off in Christ to give away through repentance. But then he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, put on, clothe yourself, with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. You see what he's saying? Is you can try to put on any set of good things, either for spiritual reasons or for other reasons, but it's actually love that connects them all in their proper proportion, puts them in their proper place, gives them a certain kind of unity. Without love, all the virtues we attempted to do will, be, will not have their proper limiting principle. They won't have their proper placing principle. And so they'll all go off into grotesque, like, overworkings. So that in compassion, we harm the poor. So that in righteousness, we beat up on people that we need to give some care to and understanding to and so on. There will be no sense of when, how, where we do these virtues. Only love can bind them together in perfect unity. In 2 Peter, you can see that Peter sees love as the highest of the built-together virtues, that love is the hardest thing in the world. You could see how that could be if love is the personification of God, in a way. That it's faith and goodness and knowledge and self-control 
and perseverance and godliness, and then you can start to just be even kind to people truly, and then maybe, like Jesus, you could love. So love is our greatest spiritual pursuit. Whatever it means to grow in God, to find, to, to, to uplift spiritually, to get where we want to go as people becoming like Christ, the ultimate goal is the increase of our capacity to love. Right? All right. So love is the beating center of living faith in Jesus. I could do that for a couple hours. We're just going to leave that there for right now. It's important to recognize when we look at what undermines love that the alternative to love isn't hate. Do you understand? The alternative to love is not hate. When people are like, stop the hate, they're not advocating for love. Not necessarily, right? When Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace but a sword onto the earth, I'm going to divide family members against each other. He didn't say, I'm going to be a person to hate, so I'm going to bring the sword. What he said is, implicitly what this means is this. He says, anybody who preaches and lives real love will incur hatred from some portion of the population. Anybody who lives for love and speaks the truth in love will have a substantial portion of the human race hate them. If everybody loves you, it is highly unlikely that you are consistently acting in love. Does that make sense? The alternative to love is not hatred. The alternative to love is the idolatries of the self, right? Sometimes we just call it pride. Turning away from caring for and delighting in others and making sure that they are used for us and delighting in us. That's the opposite of love, right? The way that this functions for human disappearance in the Technopoly is by increasing our love for what Jesus called mammon, right? Which is essentially worldliness, which is loving the things we can get, loving the things that we think will provide for us, loving the things that we think will get a status or appreciation or comfort or power or control, things that the Reformed tradition connects with the Old Testament, what it calls idolatry, worshiping false gods, but gods that we really believe will serve us. The essence of idolatry is instead of serving the God that we find our true God good when we serve him and his purposes, we find other things to serve that we really think will serve us and what we want and the way we want to get there. Right? Mammon is the selfish ambition of the technopoly. That is, we made the technopoly and have shaped ourselves in the image of our idols. Just as the first humans who were endowed with a capacity for technology, instead of extending the beauty of the garden, tried to build Babel up and become gods. And God knocked them down for their use of the good gift that he gave them. Human beings continue to do this. We continue to use our capacity to build technologies and cultures, to build things that worship and aggrandize ourselves, rather than do the creation mandate and the redemption mandate that Jesus actually gave us. To take good creative dominion in the earth, and to love one another. Um, you might wonder, like, so how, I mean, one of the things you could say is, as the technopoly has increased and grown and become stronger in our lives, have we, as human beings, as Americans, as us in this church, have we grown in love? Right? In a, in a recent book um, called Should I Stay or Should I Go about having a relationship with narcissists, the author says this, a survey of 35,000 people by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, estimates that 6.2% of the population have traits of narcissistic personality disorder. The standard norm for the last 100 years has been 3%, okay? 6.2% of the population have traits of narcissistic personality disorder. Unfortunately, the proportion of young people in their 20s, 9%, is far higher than those 
over the age of 65, 3%. Technology is the reason. So em empirically speaking, as much as you can get empirical with psychological survey data, it's the best they've got. We have gone from a nation of 3% of people having clear major traits of being a narcissist to 9% in people in their adults in their 20s. We have tripled one of the worst personality disorders there could be. But what marks this personality disorder, spiritually speaking? Well, what psychologists, the way psychologists would say is grandiosity and a lack of empathy. The way Christians would say it was, these are, those are too narrow, too science-sized words. It is a lack of love and a growth of pride. Right? That, endemically in the human person, we have tripled, right? She says this relative to technology. It's very likely that the difference in rates of narcissism between adults in their 20s and those over 65 is a byproduct of the reliance on technology. The cultural pressure and norms around posting selfies and chronic validation seeking makes many of the behaviors of narcissism simply normal in younger adults. It's hard to engage in listening to another person with empathy, read love there, that is truly focused and cherishing and delighting in another if you're waiting for the spotlight to shine right back on you. It's easy to fall prey to grandiosity, read pride, when folks are just a few thousand Instagram likes or YouTube views away from stardom. Now think about this. If we have tripled the number of people that are in the far outlier of an inability to love, what do you think we've done to the major central nature of the population who might have been just like generally caring before? Right? We haven't, like, succeeded in making full-out straight narcissists out of them. But you can be darn sure we've slid the whole standard deviation of the American population, probably the world population, towards people with less empathy, i.e. love, and more grandiosity, i.e. pride. I cannot think of a more effective counter-formational discipleship methodology than the Technopoly has achieved already in relationship to our capacity to have the basic building blocks of love. She concludes this way. Yes, the lack of love and the presence of pride is currently on display in numerous public figures whose ungodly traits are actually applauded by their admirers. Here's what this means. That antisocial, self-involved vanity is not just a norm that we tolerate, but the ticket. Narcissism is aspirational in the technopoly. Do you understand? It's not just like, well, we'll put up with that. It's not. No, it's actually like, he's awesome. I want to be like that. Do you remember the passage from yesterday in Philippians 3, where Paul talked about people who their mind was on earthly things and their citizenship was not in heaven, that they were fully worldly? He said, the very thing that they glory in, they think is the greatest thing about them, is the very thing that if they knew God, they would be most ashamed of. Right? There's this verse in Philippians that I memorized in college because you might not know me. I'm given to vainglory. Um, where the apostle says this. And just if you, you pro everybody probably needs, in, in 2024, probably every single one of us needs to at least memorize this and maybe tattoo it on the back of our eyelids, okay? Which do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, looking not to your own interests, but each of, each of you to the interests of others, right? Now, how does this function? I want you to understand how this functions because we have to directly, in the way of Jesus, counteract it, okay? 
the very foundation of how love operates, its very structures are being entirely reversed in our participation in worldliness, particularly through the means of the technopoly, which is just these simple things. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. It, it leads us to be more self-involved rather than more self-forgetful and focus on others. It leads us more towards consumerism. What can I get and devour and taste and feel rather than what can I give, produce and give, right? It, it makes us more materialistic, like looking at the stuff we can touch and lick around us, as opposed to the immaterial realities that have to be at the center of who we are, that is spiritual and, and he- heavenly-minded realities. It makes us more transactional in all of our relationships, which makes us feel like we don't have obligations, right? Like if I trade with you, I'm going to give you something, you're going to give me money, right? Or I'm going to like take you to something, and you're going to make me look good, and I'm going to let you be part of it. And like every little dynamic is transaction. What that means is that I get to believe that I don't have any obligations to you. We had a transaction, that's it. If I go to like Walmart and I buy a, like a, I don't know, a duck or something, right? Like, like I give them money, I get my duck, right? And I leave, and we're done. I have no further obligations to Walmart. They have no further obligations to me. Increasingly, as consumeristic materialism moves through the technopoly into the devouring of our lives, we start to think of every transaction and therefore every relationship as fundamentally transactional. But your relationships aren't transactional. They're comprehensive. Every time you relate to another human being, they are a complete human being with all the things that justice demands that they deserve and all the opportunities to love and cherish another person made in the very image of God. Even when you do just buy a duck at Walmart, which of course nobody does, um, even that isn't transactional. The person who checks you out of the cash register, if there is even a person, they're a human being. The people who stock the shelves are human beings. The people whose parking lot, parking space you steal or don't run over as you pull out are human beings. And they deserve more, even in those transactions, than sheer transactionality. One of the ways to start working against this in your life is to start treating your transactions like they're more than transactions. If you could start doing that, like actually talk to your server and treat her like a human being or him like a human being, that that could start moving to realize that your mom is a human being. Right? And that your boss is a person. And that your employees are people. I was talking with Frank Beckovich this week, and he said, he said, um, his dad told him one day, he's like, you know, everybody who's your underling at work is a king or queen when they go home. And you need to treat them in such a way that when you send them home, they go home with that dignity. And that you haven't stolen it from them or broken it out of them. That's, that, I was like, that is, that is some real wisdom right there. I hope it's okay for me to share that, Frank, if you're here. Um, you, we can go on, right? The virtual versus the corporeal, right? The, the, the virtual is like, the stuff that happens in there is more real. Is that at least as real? Maybe more real. The corporeal is like the belief that like, no, no, no. This body I have, this is my main interactive mechanism. My senses, my mind, my ability to touch and smell and taste and interact. This is the best reality that's ever been created. And when I move away from it, I am almost always emotionally escaping or narrowing and making things easier. I need to not kid myself. And you go through, asadia is basically sloth in having a passion and fervor to do the good. As opposed to piety, which is a passion and fervor to do what is good, what God wants, right? Wrath versus meekness. Do you think people exert wrath on the technopoly? A little bit, yeah. Right? As opposed to restraint and being like, no, that person's right in front of me. I'm trying to build something with them, even if I could break it right now. And then, I, I'm sorry for some of you guys are going to like this, high versus sober, right? I think it was Jason Isbell, who is not a Christian, was asked by somebody in like a news thing, they were like, what's the cost? Like, 
I'm going to say something, you respond. Sobriety, right? And this is a guy who's done a lot of drugs, right? He's just like choosing to live a real life. Because he recognized all the drugs that he did, all the alcohol that he drank, it was all just an escape. The real world is just too hard to live in. And the reality is, is that part of the technopoly is, I mean, just look around at like, like younger people and like their edibles and their, they're like just high, but I just be high all the time. You can just be high all the time now, right? Um, and it's a lot more, when I, mean, I was in college, there were people that were high all the time. But now it's real easy. You don't smell like smoke. You just pop stuff and like you don't have to be here really. Or you can take the edge off. You know what take the edge off means? It means putting yourself in an altered state of consciousness where you don't feel the responsibilities or what it means that you do things to make everything easier, right? Remember, like, when you drink alcohol and then you drive a car, you don't forget it's wrong to drive a car when you're drunk and you can kill people. You just don't care. That's what alcohol does to your brain. That's what being high does to your brain. You're walking around and doing stuff that matters, but the part of your brain that tells you that it matters, you put to sleep. You anesthetize the moral and conscientious part of your being. That is, you partially dehumanized or lobotomized your divine image. And the technopoly just says, let's do more of that. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Throw that stuff in the garbage and face life as it is, and you'll become a person, right? And over and over, Jesus makes very clear that you can't, you, you cannot live this way as his disciple. This is not his way. He's calling you to a different way, right? You can also see this in the destruction of the function of love. We talked about time, the content of our faith, and our formation. All three of those things are the when, the what, and the how of love. How we use our time is the when of love. What is part of our faith is the what is loving. And us being able to actually love is the how. To the extent to which we didn't listen the last three weeks, we're completely undermined in the content of this week, which is the beating heart of living faith in Jesus. Right? But also, it's not only that. There's this place in the Lord of the Rings where King Theoden has been so lied to over years by Wormtongue. He said, you would have made me an animal groveling on the ground. That is, the lies that he believed and the worldliness of the lies that he was told was unmanning him. He was becoming less than human. And you see, that, there's a deeper level in which the attack is not just on our conceptualization of love. It's not just on the structures of love. It's on our very human capacities to even care about another self or be a solid self. One of Lewis's greatest novels is Till We Have Faces, where Oriole, the, the queen, who is this very ugly woman who is a queen, wears a veil her whole life, and she ultimately, at the end of her life, in a dream, confronts the gods. And she realizes that she makes her case against the gods and how they haven't treated her right, that one of the gods just says, is that enough? And she realizes she's just been shouting over and over again this nonsensical argument and like clutching this paper she'd written it on. And she said, she said, it's a strange thing. How can the gods ever love us or see us face to face until we have faces? You see, fundamental to the intersubjective nature of love, an I and a thou, is you have to be a person. Like when you look at another person romantically and you, th you think, I could love this person the rest of my life. It shouldn't be like, she's hot, or charming, or a fashionista, or whatever. It should be like, every time I talk with her, I see a little bit more. She's a little deeper. And I think that I could explore that depth, and she could develop that depth with me together the rest of our lives. 
And I would never tire of seeing the deeper in her and helping develop the deeper in her and her see the deeper in me and develop the deeper in me. How are you going to be in love in your 60s? Or are you just going to mourn the loss of your fertility and virility for the second half of your life? Love requires us to be a self, to be turned out from ourselves rather than full of this interiority that creates raging anxiety. And to then have the capacity to look upon another self for its own purposes and delight and cherish that self. The technopoly is eviscerating your capacity for this by making you self-involved and filling us with such an anxious interiority that we can't become ourselves. We don't know who we are. We can't become a solid self. Therefore, we can't give or receive love reliably. We are devourers because we're hungry for something that we can't produce and we can't appreciate. It is a deep, deep problem. And it's why we don't just have a narcissism epidemic, we have an anxiety epidemic, and an identity epidemic, and a courage epidemic, and a care epidemic. We need to wake up. All right, so for the last two minutes, <laughs> we need to reflect on, this is going to take a little bit longer, but hopefully not too What's the source then of love? Like, how do I get reconnected to this? I can't just disconnect from technopoly. How do I get connected to a source of love that can produce this in me? How do I get, how do I get free of the lies and grip my sword again and find my strength? To quote that scene from Theoden. And it, it's God who makes love possible in his Christ. Jesus the Christ is love to behold and love beholding us. Right? Miroslav Wolf, when he spoke downtown at Upper House this week, said— one of the great pictures of love in the New Testament is the woman who comes to the offering and puts in her last two tiny pennies. And Jesus says, she gave more than everybody. She gave everything she had to live on. You're like, is that passage about love? Because it doesn't mention love. But his argument was this, and I think that this is compelling. He said, look, the idea is, is that she had an internal wealth of some kind that could make her maximally generous. She gave literally her last security in this world out of devotion to God knowing those two pennies would do virtually nothing to change the renovation of the temple, right? But she gave it. She was, she was free. She was rich. She was secure. She had a promise. She wasn't just more generous than all the other men. She was richer than all the other men, right? Think about the logic in Romans where the Apostle Paul says, if God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, for those of you who are like, he gave up his, his son was willing to go and wanted to go as much as the father wanted to send him. But what he's saying is, is the, the father could in stinginess have not sent his son for that purpose. But he did send his son for that purpose, right? He says, how much, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered like sheep to be slaughtered, right? He's quoting the Old Testament. Life is hard. We belong to God, and yet we suffer terribly, right? He's like, how are we supposed to do with that? And he said, no, that's not the final word. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How many times do you say to yourself, whatever it is I need, the one who gave me Christ 
What is he going to withhold from me that I need? What can he possibly withhold? Who puts that kind of down payment and doesn't make the last payment? Who is that generous up front and stingy on the back end? It doesn't make any sense. Right? And so as you understand the gospel of Jesus, you begin to realize these wealths, these freedoms, these resources, these promises that are in you, that are in Christ. And from that living water that Jesus talks about all through John's gospel, we have this flowing wealth out of which we know who we are, we can face what's in front of us, and we can care about another person. Because we're not empty selves. We're full selves. And that one of the dynamics of this comes from one of the things that really bothers me. You can see the technopoly and worldliness eating its way into the church. Because whenever you quote this passage, love your neighbor as yourself, do you know what a lot of people say? And this is, I, I wish this was hilarious. It's not funny. You know what that means, you guys? You know what that means? Love your neighbor as yourself. It means you have to love yourself before you can love your neighbor. That's what it means. You know what I mean? You've got to love yourself. Right? That's baloney. That is one of the worst cases of eisegesis, putting what you want into the passage, I've ever heard. It's the, it's a, it could not be a worse interpretation of the passage. Now, there are people who have emotional blocks about love because they have not been cherished. They have been treated like objects and not subjects. And that can block up your capacity to understand that you are, you are beloved and you can gaze upon love. And it, it is very helpful for people sometimes to help you figure out how to love yourself. So I'm not saying don't seek spiritual guidance or counseling or whatever, okay? What I'm saying, though, is, is that that's not what the verse means. What the verse means is you ate this morning. You put—you fed yourself. You put clothes on, okay? You are first to you, all right? Now, do that for your neighbor. That's love. That's what he's saying. Just like in Ephesians 5, when it says a husband's wife is like his own body. He's like, you feed your body, right? You bathe your body, right? You take care of your body, right? And it's like, well, some more than others. It's like, well, but you do. Now treat her at least as well as you treat your own body, right? It's not a, well, if I take care of myself, then that's not what it means, okay? Now, be, and here's why. Because this idea of the interiority, that I'll find love if I look inside of myself, and I like look at all the things that are inside of me, and I love those things. That is the most anti-Christian philosophy that has ever dawned on the face of the planet. Because what, what Scripture teaches is that inside of us is confusion and disorder, the image of God, but also sin and depravity and idolatry. Ourselves are this mixture of disgusting nonsense in the midst of incredible, meaningful, moral capacity and beauty, all mixed together. And if you look inside, it's no wonder if you were honest at all, all that would ever produce is anxiety and fear and frustration and, and clinginess and neediness and— self-involvement and self-pity? No, what has to happen is the, the way we learn love is at our mother's breast. To drink in life and to look at her eyes when we can't hardly even focus yet and see her looking at us, beholding us and adoring us and then changing us and dressing us and serving us and washing our feet, and beholding us, and knowing, and watching ourselves be looked at in love, being beheld in love, being proven by the act of another that we are worth loving. And in so doing, being lovely. So that in seeing her, we are caught up into her loveliness. 
That is why most everything that's important that happens to human beings happens before the age of five in terms of their development, i.e. their capacity to love and be loved. Because we are meant to drink in that love and to behold that love and so then to just love and know we are loved. But our, but our parents or our mother or our lover is a proxy for the greater lover, beholder, and one who is to behold, which is God, most displayed in the man Jesus the Christ. So that in Jesus the Christ, we know we are beheld, that he looks upon us with delight and cherishing. Not just that he'll fulfill your needs. See, some of you think, well, like, I believed in Jesus. We did this transaction where he's going to forgive me and I'm going to go to heaven. That's true. Part of love is care. But part of love in the divine heart is delight and cherishing and attention, right? He's looking upon you, beholding you, and cherishing you. And you're like, well, I'm a mess. And you're like, yeah, that's why. Better to look upon his cherishing of you than your own interiority and anxiety and self-pity and all that. Look upon the one who can look upon all of that and behold and love and cherish you. It will give you hope that the mess inside of you can be healed and even as it is right now can be loved. And if you freely receive that, even while you're still a crap ton of mess, you can turn to love others. You can freely receive from the source of love and you can freely give. You can turn the broken cistern into a pitcher and you can fill it up and you can pour it out. And as you do it, the pitcher itself begins to heal. And we begin to believe that we can be loved. And we begin to believe that love is the ultimate good, what we're here for. We begin to feel the riches inside of us. And the fountain of living water to pour out of us will grow in its feet per second until we are loving. You don't have to be holy to begin to love. You have to transmit the love of God, but you have to start transmitting the love of God by turning and be—let yourself be beheld. And look back and behold beauty, finding you the object of delight. That is the source of love. Then you can worry about fixing your interiority or whatever. But without that first piece, you'll probably swirl like a whirlpool the rest of your life. Friends, we have to wake up to what the technopoly is doing to our capacity to love. We have to wake up. You have to see that this is not some sort of simple thing. We are being destroyed in both directions at once. We're becoming like anxious, self-pitying narcissists. And, and the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples if we love one another. We have to give them their God-given alternative. And so we must live that God-given alternative. And the great cost that you'll have to pay, besides death, is that you'll have to receive love and look upon the fountain of all loveliness. You'll have to do that. Salvation is by generosity, by grace. Let's pray. Okay, Lord, uh, that was a lot. Uh, please, please help us to shake free 
and to be inspired by you, by love, by the grace of Christ, by the beauty of Christ himself, by you beholding us, by the fact that he who gave up his own son, will, what is he going to hold back? What will he ever hold back from us? Help us to experience the riches and help us to begin to experiment in freely, freely receiving and freely giving. And in that work of love, help us to find the kind of love you meant us to have, the kind of self and person you've meant us to be, so that you can look into our eyes for all eternity and find more and more that you like in us, as we are never tired of finding new depth and loveliness in you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.